Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. You may have seen a recent article in InsideHigherEd.com that began, Wyoming Catholic College has a lot of unusual things about it, each enough to merit a story in itself. Wyoming Catholic is a conservative Catholic college that educates students in the great books and Catholic tradition. It also teaches horsemanship and bans cell phones on campus. I love that. And it turned down federal funding. President Glenn Arbery describes the mission this way. This college is engaged in deep ways with the agony of a culture that has lost its spiritual center. We're adventurous and poetic and deeply Catholic. He likes to cite Dostoevsky in Crime and Punishment. Low ceilings are bad for the soul. The ceilings rise at Wyoming Catholic, which is located in the foothills of the Wind River Mountains, the curriculum centers in the Western tradition. Its Catholic identity builds upon Thomas Aquinas and the magisterium of the Catholic Church and engaging with God in the wilderness. Find out more at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us today Jeffrey Pulse. He is professor of exegetical theology at Concordia Theological Seminary. His book is Figuring Resurrection, Joseph as a Death and Resurrection Figure in the Old Testament and Second Temple Judaism. This is our topic today. Welcome, Professor Pulse. Oh, thank you. It's good to be with you. All right. Well, tell me first, first, you know, maybe a personal question. What brings you to the story of Joseph? You like it? Uh, well, <laughs> I was sort of, I was, um, well, I, when I began my PhD work at the University of Durham in England, I think it was my doctoral father who gently guided me in this direction. The area I was uh, studying was called uh, uh, at concept of the afterlife in the Old Testament. And so looking for a, a good figure to work with, and, and one that I felt was important would be Joseph, be, because he's an older figure, a Genesis figure, uh, due to the fact that uh, so many scholars will argue that the uh, Hebrews in the Old Testament, certainly the early Old Testament, did not have a real developed idea of the afterlife that you just died and that was it, or you rested in the grave, or you slept with your fathers, but or Sheol, but those were just kind of um, generic type of things. So Joseph, because of his uh, antiquity, uh, was the figure that I chose to work with, although I must say I think I was, again, gently directed in that, that manner so that I would head that direction. And I'm glad it turned out very well, and it really... Well, it accomplished what I set out to do. At least, for my mind, it was uh, he was the perfect figure to discuss the uh, how the the Hebrews view of of the afterlife and if they had one, um, and why is the Old Testament text so um, why why are there not more references, explicit references to death and resurrection and that and that sort of thing. And now, and now you have the book. You're, you're, you'll, you'll answer all of those questions. Uh, well, I give it a good stab anyway. How's that? <laughs> well, you're, you, you know, one, one model sort of in terms of plot, you know, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm a literature professor. So we like when we, when we hear about plots, which is not the same as story, as, as Aristotle made very clear. But you wish to see uh, Joseph as uh, something of a multiple dying and rising Plot. Correct. Now, is, is that an unusual interpretation in biblical scholarship? Is that a common conception or no? Uh, it has 
come back around, I think. Uh, I think early church saw him that way, although they would focus more on his um, salvific role of uh, providing grain and all of that, which is all part of, I mean, they're not disconnected, obviously. But um, now we see more uh, conservative Judaism. You see more of them returning to that again. I mean, in the ancient times, this was not an uncommon thought. The rabbis speak of his, uh, his um, downward, upward movements as a dying and rising thing. This pops up every now and then in rabbinic Judaism. So um, it's not as if it's an unheard of thing, but it hasn't exactly been on the, the front burner for Western Christianity very much until, again, somewhat recently. You say that it is important that we read Scripture as a unified theological narrative. Uh, why, why is that? I think we need to return to the idea, and I think we, I suppose it seems counterintuitive. People say, well, don't we do that? Uh, but I don't think we really do, but we think we do, or we want to. But we divide the you know scriptures up into pericopes and into books and then chapters and all of these things and it becomes kind of disjointed. But the reality is it's just one story, and everything is of course centered around the cross, the uh, life of Christ and uh, death and resurrection, etc. But but everything is is either leading up to that or that which follows, you know, leading up then to his return. So we need, I, it really is written as one story and uh, not so disjointed as, as we approach it. Now, th there is, um, I think we moved away from that a little bit uh, during the higher criticism times, which we still struggle a little bit with, but it's certainly not the leading thing out there now. But, but in higher criticism, you broke everything down into parts and this guy stuffed this in here and the redactor, et cetera, et cetera. But in reality, you know, it, it really is uh, to be read as one unified whole. And so people have returned to what we call a narrative reading or the, calling it the grand narrative. But the, for us as, uh, yeah, for me anyway, as a Lutheran, I, I have to think of this in terms of it being united also, just not just in narrative, but also in its theology. In other words, it's not various and sundry competing theologies throughout Scripture. There is, there's one, and they, they agree. It all agrees how it's put together and has that kind of focus of being unified in that, in that manner. Now, we begin in Genesis 37. And you say that the Genesis story changes uh, somewhat with the introduction of Joseph. How so? Well, it's obvious by uh, reading it, you know, that, that, that we have a, oh, a different patriarchal tradition beginning. You know, uh, there's like 12 of these, uh, what they call toldos. I mean, usually it's like these are the generations, and it starts another section of Genesis. That's why you have two creation stories and two accounts of Esau. There are different patriarchal traditions that Moses has, uh, by uh, inspiration, you know, have edited together, if you will, into Genesis. So 
uh, Joseph narratives, uh, beginning at 37 to 50, uh, are very unique in many ways. You see a lot of uh, a lot more doubling, and um, like there's always two dreams, and there's uh, and Joseph just doesn't dream; he dreams a dream. Shalom, shalom, you know, and all over and over, a lot of doubling in here, and so it's it's. And the, the language is obvious that um, that we have another, a different patriarchal tradition here. So that that's a little fascinating in and of itself. It's also the longest section of uh, Genesis. And part of this 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 break at a, a different kind of tra- tradition or 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 family is the very complicated family dynamics there with Joseph which you which you go into what are the what is the situation with the family well you know this would be a really good soap opera you could uh, get a lot of uh, mileage out of it in fact I, I would say that uh, a lot of people have got a lot of mileage out of this story you know where remember uh, Joseph is technicolor dream coat all these various things but that's been going on people using the Joseph narratives or the Joseph story for all sorts of things in theater and movies and the like. But the, this, something about this dysfunctional family really um, grabs hold of people. So here we have Jacob, who has 12 sons with four wives, and he uh, decides to show favoritism to one, and I mean a lot of favoritism. And it becomes a rather sticky problem with the other, well, at least 10 of the other 11. I mean, I don't recall you explicitly saying this, but do you think the favoritism follows because his father recognizes at an early age this is a remarkable young man? Would you you go that far? I don't know. I would definitely say it was the first son of his favorite wife, and there seems to be some indication that Joseph, you know, he loved Rachel because she was so beautiful, etc. They use the same words in describing Joseph. So it could be, since Rachel is, by the time the Joseph narratives begin, Rachel is already uh, has already died, it could be that he reminds him of his favorite wife, you know, because he has the same facial appearance or he's handsome and good looking and all that sort of thing, just like Rachel was beautiful and all this. There is some indication of that possibility. Joseph grows up 17 years old. You you raised the question, is is Joseph a, a, a little liar? Is he a teen? Is he a typical teenage boy who, 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 who lies all the time? I don't know if he lies all the time, but he <laughs> does have a really... Yeah, he's pretty darn typical, though, in many ways. He's uh, he's immature. He's uh, a little full of himself. He likes to rub it in, things into his brothers. Uh, yeah, I'd say he's pretty typical. And he's also not very intuitive to the way, I mean, he, he surely, you would think he surely knows that it's not a good idea to wear the coat everywhere you go. And it's probably not a good idea to rub this dream in their face and then another dream in their face. Like, hey, hey, guys. What, what, what are the dreams? Let, let us know. Just, just recap those again. Yeah, the first dream was uh, Joseph had a dream where there, 
they were out gathering sheaves in the field and suddenly all the sheaves rose up and the 11 sheaves surrounded his sheaf of grain or wheat and bowed down to it. And of course, the brothers immediately, you know, interpreted that, you know, Joseph didn't interpret it, but the brothers interpreted it to mean that they, that Joseph would rule over them or that he thought he would and everything. This, of course, pleased them very little. In the second dream, uh, it's uh, Joseph has this dream of uh, 11 stars, the sun and the moon bowing down to him somehow or another, you know. So, um, so right away, of course, now it's Jacob interprets that dream, and I would argue interprets it incorrectly, but that they, he and his wife and his 11 sons would bow down to, to Joseph. Well, I think maybe the 11 sons fit the 11 stars, but I don't think the sun and the moon are, are Jacob and his wife, because all of well, his his wife, Joseph's mother, is dead, so it's hard to bow down when you're dead, for instance, for example. So I think it really probably the sun and moon here probably referring to the all the foreign nations who come to him and bow down to receive grain. But it's not really a ruling as a, a, the bowing down doesn't signify ruling. It's more like uh, uh, respect uh, to the one who's going to save your bacon by selling grain to you. Hmm. Is the bloody garment the first thing to raise the death death and resurrection motif? Actually, I think the first thing is the the barren womb of Rachel, you know, which happens before this text, but is connected to Joseph because he's the one, he's the child that opens the womb. Uh, it's very common for a barren womb to be thought of as uh the same as a tomb, or uh, it's one of the death motifs, you know, that a barren womb is 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 a place of death among the, among the Hebrews and Jews, very common. And the early church, I think also, although I couldn't tell you who, has brought this up before. So, but the opening of the womb then is is a reflection of a resurrection, a new life. And so Joseph is the one who opens the womb a barren womb of Rachel. So we see that motif of death and life, the earliest one then, Joseph. Then, of course, we get the into the tomb, or into the pit, rather, and then and uh, raised back up. And we have the, this whole garment motif is it's just fascinating in Scripture. And certainly Joseph, his, uh, his bloody garments, you know, they're always... If you even starting back in oh probably well the Garden of Eden, but this idea of a of a bloody garment, you know, um, you see all sorts of examples of of the blood of goats or or the animal skins in uh, God's clothing, Adam and Eve coming out of the garden. You see uh, this covering and uh, all of that. So, but this idea of the the cloak or the garment being used to deceive. Is, is like some sort of family tradition in in, uh, in Genesis because Esau lost his birthright because Jacob used his brother Esau's garment to deceive his father to get the blessing. Now we see uh, all the boys using the garment of Joseph to deceive Jacob. 
Then we're going to see Judah being deceived by the garment of Tamar in chapter 38. You know, all of this, it just keeps on. And then chapter 39, we have Potiphar's wife using Joseph's garment to deceive her husband. So it's ongoing. Let's pause for a moment for what I believe is one of the best schools of higher learning in the country, the University of Dallas, the premier Catholic liberal arts university in Texas. With campuses in Irving, Texas, and Rome, Italy, UD offers a rigorous and exciting core curriculum that sets it apart, an education rooted in the great works of Catholic and Western tradition, an education that ennobles and enables students in their pursuit of wisdom, truth, and virtue. Fidelity to man requires fidelity to the truth, which alone is the guarantee of freedom and of the possibility of integral human development. Those are the words of Pope Benedict, quoted at the University of Dallas, and guiding educators in all the departments of the university. Undergraduate, graduate, and certificate programs are available. Start your college odyssey at the University of Dallas today. Go to udallas.edu to learn more. Uh, why do we have this interruption of the Joseph narrative with this insertion of the Judah Tamar narrative? Is there something about that story that is to reflect upon Joseph's story? I think absolutely, and I've I think what you have going on here are two introductory chapters which introduce the two main characters, Joseph and Judah. And it's pretty obvious that Joseph is uh, is going to be or looks like he's the, the hero of the story. And Judah doesn't look so good when he's having uh, issues with his sons and then sleeping with his daughter-in-law or whatever. So it, it kind of sets the stage. But as as the whole story moves forward, you see the, these two coming together. And, and by the time we get to chapter 49 and the blessings, it's Judah who, who has risen up and received the uh, messianic promise, the blessing. And uh, Joseph, he gets the double portion, but the most important thing goes to Judah. And there, there's that spot where they cross. You can just see it crossing over in the text. Uh, I think it's 44 chapter 44, verse 33, where, where Judah has a speech to Joseph who he doesn't know yet or hasn't recognized, supposedly. And uh, he says, um, he offers himself up in the place of Benjamin. Suddenly, Judah looks is the hero because he, he's offering to be a substitute. What we might call uh, an example of substitutionary atonement scripture. And Judah's offering to take the place of Benjamin. And it's at that moment where the two brothers, I think, switch places as to who is first and who is second in this, in this narrative. When we return in Genesis 38 to Joseph, what's going on with his story? Well, he's a slave in Potiphar's household. And he is up against uh, his biggest problem. And of course, he rises up second in command of the house. He's, he's number two. This is Joseph, by the way, and the rabbis bring this up a lot. Joseph was always number two, but he's never number one. And, and, that's be, and the rabbis say uh, something to the effect that this is to remind him that God is always above you, or to remind us that God is always above us, that Nobody is number one. God is number one. So it's kind of an interesting thing with Joseph. He's second under his father, but above his brothers. Now he's second 
in uh, Potiphar's household. He's in charge of everything because he's uh, everything he touches, you know, is is uh, prospers Potiphar. So he's going to go with that. That brings to him some attention that he really doesn't need. Plus the fact, and here's where we hear the language of he was handsome in form and appearance, which again is not a good thing for a slave because the master's wife takes a, a liking to him and she she wants to sleep with him. And he's, of course, resisting this, but it goes on and on and on. And then one day he comes back in the house. Now, when no other men were present, and he knew that because he was in charge of the house, it looks as if he's maybe... Uh, giving in to temptation, however, before he at the last minute he does the right thing and he runs away, but he leaves his cloak, his his garment behind, and of course that's what's used to convince Potiphar that Joseph has uh, the cost of his wife. Although I'm not completely convinced, honestly, Mark, that uh, that Potiphar believed his wife. The the word for the title for Potiphar is also a title um, for like he would be a, a eunuch in the king's court or the pharaoh's court. And if he's a eunuch and he became a eunuch later after he was married, he's got one frustrated wife. Now, you, one thing you bring up is Joseph uh, seems, again, obtuse in that he doesn't stay away from her. He doesn't keep himself out of a, a dangerous situation of being alone with her. And what what do you say about that? Uh, yeah, I really do believe that he's kind of uh, given in to temptation, ex- but then he, again, at the last minute, he, he gets, I, in fact, there, there's some Talmud stuff and some where it will say, they've rewritten these things, you know, to kind of Targumic stuff where they uh, rewrote this, the, rabbis and and says something to the effect and just when things were getting really hot and heavy a vision of jacob appeared to joseph and joseph got himself together and ran away (laughs) or something to that effect so it's it's fascinating how they keep the, the jewish rabbis see the problems with what you just mentioned and they're a little concerned about it and it's hard to use joseph as a really good moralistic figure if He's falling prey, so they have to kind of clean him up a bit. As we move on, Joseph ends up in prison. Uh, and, and I'm going to ask you a question uh, offered by a, a hopeless amateur. Why is dream interpretation, why is the talent of dream interpretation so important? Why is that so valuable in this time? Well, we know for a fact they had professional priests in the court of Pharaoh, whose main job was to interpret dreams. So if somebody had a dream, it meant something. And, uh, and you would uh, literally, uh, I suppose, order your life according to the dream. Maybe you would make the dream even come true, you know, by the way you, you um, responded to it. But usually, you know, you had to have some professional to interpret it. Well, these, the butler, the chief steward, and the uh, chief baker, they were, because they're in prison, they didn't have access to those uh, to those priests at the court. And so they said, we have nobody to interpret it. And so Joseph says, well, dreams and interpretation belong to God. 
why don't you tell them to me? And he, of course, interprets them and all of that. Notice again, we have a pair of dreams. There's always two dreams in, in three occurrences here in Joseph, the doubling again. Uh, you, you know some parallels with Daniel. What are those? Well, boy, that Daniel is, um, a lot of people have, you know, talked about, you know, who, who don't really see Scripture maybe in the way I see it, but they, they say they're so close that that they got to be one story took it from the other one. It's just a matter of who took who from what, you know. But, there, you know, if you look at Daniel, he's in a foreign, he's serving in a foreign court. He is, uh, he has brought great uh, honor and prosperity and, and is very faithful. And there are a bunch of uh, enemies who don't like that. And they seek to destroy Daniel. And he gets thrown into a pit. Uh, it really is in Daniel, same word as in in, uh, in Genesis. It's the word for pit. Not, it's not a den. And then a big stone is rolled in front of it, you know, overnight and all this. We see, uh, yeah, Daniel is a, has many of these uh, death and resurrection motifs uh, within it as well. Probably almost, not quite as many as Joseph, but pretty close. Maybe number two. Moses is pretty big as well. That's maybe the three characters with the most uh, death and resurrection motifs in Scripture. Now, in Genesis 42, when Joseph's brothers come to Egypt uh, to, to buy grain, they've done a horrible thing to Joseph. Joseph recognizes them, and they don't recognize him. Why doesn't Joseph tell them at once who he is? Well, it appears, and I and this probably, I think I agree with this, it, it appears that he feels the need to see if they... Uh, if they have uh, what matured, or have they? Do they regret what they did to him? Uh, so he he throws out all these tests, and basically, if you look at the tests, the things that happen, he does to them, in some manner or another, the same thing they caused to happen to him. So he throws them all into prison. He uh, and he, you know, he keeps one Simeon. He accuses them of being spies, which they thought called him that, you know, he came to tattle or to, to spy on them and tell their dad, bring back a bad report, things like that. So he accuses them of coming to spy on the land or spy out the land. He he plays the game with them, you know, and to get his brother, his uh, Benjamin, the brother of his of the same mother, all of that back there. So he, he plays this game with them, and I think he's testing them to see if they see where they're at. I mean, for all he knows, they may have killed Benjamin or sought to harm him as well. He doesn't know that. So so he's um, he's testing them to see if indeed they have uh, changed. And the thing that seems to totally convince them at Judah offers to be the uh, substitute for Benjamin. And that's when Joseph breaks down. And because that to him is like the last thing that really proves it, nails it down, that that they have changed. It's certainly very satisfying when 
you you see Joseph, he, he's got all the power now, and he's holding back. I mean, there's something, uh, there is something satisfying about reading this moment when he could reveal himself, and the brothers don't know uh, what what is really uh, what is really going on here. Does yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. What probably why why so many stories have been taken from the from the Joseph story uh, later on. But you know, does uh, is there an implicit warning in the overall story? This all begins with the father showing uh, overt favoritism toward one son, and this is a message to fathers: don't do this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know, and that's been said. And the other overt one would be, be nice like Joseph and forgive your brothers, you know, and all this. And that's really all nice. And, you know, those are messages we could take from there. But I think the the meaning and the, the purpose of the Joseph narrative is much deeper than that. It shows us, um, this Im- implicitly shows us that the, uh, that the Hebrews really did understand death and resurrection. They did understand... Uh, going down to Sheol, and they did understand being in the presence of, of the Lord God in, in what we would call heaven. They understood those differences. Um, and I think that's really the, the, the bigger, the bigger um, message of the Joseph narrative. I will say the early church would say the biggest message of Joseph narrative focuses on, on this salvific act of providing bread to the people. And then there's something that recommends that too. I can't argue with that. I mean, you know, he's, uh, he's the bread giver or the, you know, and with the, uh, the grain king or whatever, you get all that language, which we see popping back up. Of course, Christ called himself the bread of life, you know, but we also see then in the, in the Exodus, we have the manna, you know, the bread of life. You just see that reoccurring, that same language. So the early church fathers focused on that the most. It is fascinating that these other things uh, like forgiveness or um, don't play favorites, that 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 really is um, the Jews are, by the way, the the rabbis want to make Joseph a moral and ethical figure, you know, because he resisted temptation. And so they needed somebody in Scripture who resisted temptation. They couldn't use a lot of people like David and the others. So they kind of cleaned up Joseph for that. But see, that all makes Joseph more of a moral, ethical character, and it makes the Joseph narratives kind of moralistic teachings. And I think it's much deeper that theologically. The book is Figuring Resurrection, Joseph as a Death and Resurrection Figure in the Old Testament and Second Temple Judaism. Professor Pulse, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. God bless you. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877 332 2930.